Well, good morning. Good energy this morning. Good worship. Thank you, Brad Ratledge. Um, we, if you're visiting with us this morning, which there's a lot of new faces here this morning, which is great. My name is Philip Brand. I'm the pastor here, and I'm glad that you're with us. Um, in your bulletin, there's a card in there that has a volunteer thing. If you're a visitor, just ignore that. If you could put your name and maybe your email address on that card and just lay it at that counter to your left as you leave, I would like to know that you are here so that I can start praying for you. Um, it's very important to me. I'm not going to call you on the phone, sell you a vacuum cleaner. I'm not, I'm not on a pyramid scheme, nothing like that. Just, just want to pray for you and, and make that touch. Um, this morning, we're honoring our graduates, and uh, there are two of them. The first one is Sydney Becker, and her parents are right over here. Sydney could not be with us today, um, but, and that's perfectly fine. Sometimes you can't be here. She graduated from Kent State University with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing, and she'll be working at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital. So that's, that's good. So let's just clap for her, even though she's not here. So in the next coming weeks, we will, we will see her lovely face around here, and um, that will be great. The next one is Mr. Alex Ratledge. And... Oh, I'm sorry, Jake. Jake, come on up. Alex, we're going to wait on you. Okay, we're going to wait on you. This is Jake Ratledge. He is graduating from uh, Davie County High School, and he is going into the Marines. So we're very excited about that, very excited about your graduation, and um, we are going to pray for you during boot camp. There are several out here that have gone through the Marine boot camp, and uh, it is absolutely no joke, and so you're going to be on our hearts and minds as we pray for you. So let me pray for you now. How about that? All right. Father, I thank you for Jake, and I thank you that you have brought him this far, and that he is about to graduate. I pray, first of all, that the day that he receives his diploma is one of the best days of his life, and that you'll be a part of that, and that you'll bless that. Also pray, Father, that as he enters into the Marine Corps and goes through boot camp, that by supernatural strength that only you can give, you will allow him to have that so that he can make it through. I pray that as he begins his career um, in the Marine Corps, that you'll give him the wisdom that he needs um, to make wise decisions um, as he does this, um, this, it's not really a job, but this service to our country, I pray that you'll keep him safe. I pray for a hedge of protection around him and that the wisdom that you give him will enable him to maneuver through even the most difficult circumstances so that not only his life will be preserved, but also the lives of the people that he is serving with and our country's life as well. So we leave Jake into your hands and we thank you for him. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good job. The book of Esther is one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way, it's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. 
This story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. The four, and uh, so that is where we are. So if you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Esther chapter four. Esther chapter four. Um, when, I was, when I was growing up, um, about Alex's age, um, I, was, I was very short, a very short uh, guy. In fact, my son has already surpassed me in height to what I was uh, back then. I was four foot eight going into seventh grade. Now, I told everybody I was four foot ten, okay, because that just sounded better. It sounded like I was taller, but Nobody ever took out a measuring stick and tried to figure all that out anyway, so I just kept put, telling people I was four foot ten. But the reality is, I was four foot eight. And between seventh grade and tenth grade in high school, I grew an amazing two inches. Finally reached that four foot ten mark, and then from junior in high, high school all the way till I graduate, I grew a foot in those two years. So I'd literally wake up in the morning and my pants would be high, which um, by the way, is in style today. I wish that had been in style back then. But I wore a lot of shorts to school in the wintertime, right? I was the white boy in shorts, right? I don't know if I told you this, but one time I was, I was at uh, Haynes Mall, and there was a black guy, and he had on a T-shirt that, oh, no, a, a, a hoodie, a hoodie that said, somewhere there's a white guy in shorts, right? It was, oh, come on. Hey, no, that's funny. That's just funny, you know. Yeah, that's funny. So I always wanted to have a T-shirt, just a T-shirt, like maybe even a muscle shirt because, you know, I got the guns. A muscle shirt that says somewhere there's a black guy in a hoodie. I mean, I just wanted to do that, but I'm kind of afraid of all that. But nonetheless, I was, I was uh, four foot nine-ish in the ninth grade, and um, we had to take this thing called P.E., and in PE, you had to dress out, had to go do whatever they were doing. Um, we were playing basketball one time. We started basketball in the gym because that's where we like to play it. It was indoors. And um, we started playing basketball, and there was this guy. I don't even remember his name, but there was this guy. And every time I got the basketball, he would tackle me or push me down or, or get right up in my face and yell. Now, you've got to understand something. I'm no athlete. I... My basketball shot is horrible looking. It goes in one out of ten times, but it goes in, and it's horrible looking. I'm just not the guy that you, 
you should be doing all that too. But he was doing it because he was so big and I was so small and somehow or another it made him feel good. Although at the time, I didn't really view it that way. So every time I got the ball, he would come over, he'd push me, grab the ball, pick me up, do all kinds of stuff. And uh, this went on for a couple of days in, in PE to the point where I really didn't want to even dress out. But I kept on doing it because I, wanted, I, I didn't want to, you know, them to dot me in the grade. It was about the third or fourth day that this had gone on. And um, the captain of the football team at that time was, was playing basketball with us. And it was the first day that he was there. I'm not really sure why the captain of the football team was there, but nonetheless, he, he was there. And he was a pretty big guy. Well, this guy kept pushing me down, kept yelling at me, kept doing all this stuff. And the captain of the football team, who I can't even remember his name either, went over to the guy and he pushed him away from me, not in a, not in a push down way, but pushed him away from me and said, um, if you mess with him one more time, it will be like you are messing with me. From that point on in the basketball game, not only did he not guard me and went to the other side, Every other defender went to the other side of the, of the thing. And I was just shooting like crazy. Now, one out of ten shot goes in, but man, I was just shooting like crazy, passing it like crazy. It was the best P.E. day of my entire life. And from that point on, nobody ever really bothered me in school. Because you can ask me, I was just a wimp. In, in school, it was just very small, very tiny, didn't like conflict at all, tried to steer myself away from it. But that guy stood up for me. Now, there are times in life that you and I need to stand up for people. There are times when people are being pushed and they're being beat down and, and things are just not going right for that particular individual that you and I need to stand up for those people. It's amazing what that would do for their life. Sometimes you are in the right place at the right time so that you can stand for someone else, where you have the power to stand and say something for someone else and alleviate some of that, you know, tension and that pushing and all that kind of stuff now. Now, if any of you are thinking about picking a fight with me now on, I just want to let you know, I now carry a gun, okay? And, and that equals the, you know, the, the playing field. Okay, that was just a joke too. We are in Davie County, all right? It's not really a joke because it's really true, but it's still a joke. Okay, nonetheless. Nonetheless. Now, we are entering into a story where Esther is in a position where she needs to take up for a whole group of people who have been bullied. It is a race of people. The race is called the Jews. In Scripture, there are only two races, Jews and everyone else. Jews and Gentiles, you seldom see any other type of races. Yeah, there are nationalities and stuff, but on a broad scale, those are only two things. And when you mess with the Jews in Scripture, it is like you are messing with God. They're his chosen people. They're the people that he said, look, I need to choose a race. This is where Jesus is going to come from. I'm going to let everybody know that Jesus is going to come from this race so nobody will miss Jesus. And so Jesus came. He was a Jew. He died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and nobody could miss that that was actually the Messiah. So he, he chose the Jewish race. 
And it's these Jewish people that have been pushed around. It's these Jewish people that now have an edict against them that on a particular day that people can come into their homes, take all their wedding photographs. They didn't have wedding photographs. I guess it was chiseled out on a stone maybe. Anyway, they didn't have any of that stuff. But their items that would be very dear to their heart, these people were going to be able to go in and take those. But not only that, they would be able to kill every single Jew that they come into contact with, and it would absolutely be legal. So that is where uh, chapter 4 verse 1 starts, and this is what it says. And when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every providence... Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamentating, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to first notice this, because this is very important, very important, especially in the day we live in. Here was the people that were being pushed to the limit by the government. And instead of causing a protest, destroying stuff, that wasn't theirs, instead of causing harm to everyone around them, this is what they did. They stopped, they fasted, they prayed. If we are ever in a situation as Christians where we are being pressed into a corner and we're not really sure what we should do, our first step is not to grab a sign and go to Washington. Our first step is to stop, pray, and fast. Stop, pray, and fast. Violence in that particular situation does not help, but the God who is over us, that is in control of all things, can give us the wisdom that we need to handle that particular situation correctly. Now, I don't know. For me as a guy, I want to go in punching with my little bitty guns on my arms right here. See, what you don't know about me is I can actually hit and run really fast. I am really good from here down. My legs are extremely, extremely fast. But it's so hit and run, you know, that would be my tactic. But, you know, I just want to stand for something. We just want to jump into it. But in Scripture, we are instructed by God to stop and pray and fast. It is only when we do that that we gain the knowledge that we need and the right strategy to handle things God's way. So that's what he did. Now notice verse 4. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. What did Esther's young women and her eunuchs tell her? They told her, you know that guy Mordecai that you've always told us to keep an eye on? He's sitting in sackcloth and he's weeping and it looks like he's praying. Esther kept an eye on the man that she loved as a father. She did not lose track of his movements. She did not lose track of what was absolutely happening in his life. She had her young lady that, ladies that worked with her, and she had her people look 
at him and make sure that he was doing okay. Now, you might think that that's really rude. Why couldn't Esther come out there and check on him? Well, she's the queen. Come on, we don't even understand. She was the queen. She can't just walk out. It's not Aladdin. You know, you put on a cloak and you go out. If you've ever seen that movie, and he's still a... Nobody's seen Aladdin. Nobody's seen... In... Jasmine goes out. Is everybody... It's not that sort of deal. Okay, thanks. Just wondered. Um, I'm not promoting Disney movies, but if you haven't seen that one, you probably needed to get out of the house more often. Nonetheless, nonetheless, that's not the way it is. So she kept track. Listen... This is an important, an important point. It's kind of off the beaten track from, from what we're actually talking about. But I've been pastoring for, good night, 22 years. I've been pastoring for 22 years since I was 18 years old. Yeah, so 18. Yeah, you do the math. It's probably more than that. Let's just keep it at 22 because I was also 4 foot 8 and four foot ten, we'll just keep that at 22. I don't want to be too old, right? I've been out of school 25 years. 26. Doesn't matter. Nonetheless, I've been, I've been doing this job a very long period of time, and I'll tell you the saddest times that I have as a pastor is when you go into a hospital room and the family isn't even there. They don't even care. And the funeral happens, and the family isn't even involved in the funeral preparations, doesn't really care. It's a very sad commentary on what that family actually is and how they are very dysfunctional. You and I need to keep an eye on the people that are closest to us. For me, it's my mom, my dad, it's my wife, it's my two kids. I keep an eye on all of them. Now you might ask, um, why don't you keep an eye on the in-laws? (laughs) <laughs> just kidding. My wife keeps, keeps track of the in-laws pretty well. It's her mom, her dad, and I get told when things are, things are bad and I can jump in. The point of this is you need to make sure that you have your eyes on the people that are closest to you and you recognize when something is different. Now, being in sackcloth and ashes and sitting and praying is pretty obvious, but sometimes people have little differences in their demeanor that you need to notice, and the people closest to you should be able to notice those particular things. And I haven't been mad all day long, okay? He, he tried to say that I was on the borderline of being very upset. No, he, yeah. I'll just manipulate you the best way that I can. Yeah, so not even that. But you, you just notice those things. Now, some people are gifted in that, some people aren't. But you need to keep track of your people, the people that are closest to you. Next. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for um, Hatch, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hatch went over to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, that the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay in the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. 
How emotional do you think Mordecai is? You think he's pretty emotional? Okay, he's in sackcloth, he's in ashes, he's crying. Is he pretty emotional? Right. He knew that Esther at some particular point in time was going to notice that something was wrong. Wouldn't you say? And she did. She came out with these garments, she came out with this stuff, and man, she, she was trying to make it right. In his emotional state, I want you to notice what he told her. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of his people. You know what Mordecai didn't do? He didn't exaggerate. He didn't exaggerate. He told the facts. He was emotional, he had prayed, and he just gave her the facts. I think this is very important. Because humans, humans, not just Christians, have a tendency when something bad happens to them and somebody's pressing up against them, instead of just giving the facts and handling it through factual channels, they often expand on those facts and come up with scenarios on their own and add stuff to those facts and exaggerate the whole situation. You know what happens when you exaggerate a bad situation to your friends or to people or to the people you're trying to motivate to do something? You know what happens when you exaggerate those facts? You lose. At the moment that you begin to exaggerate the facts and you begin to expand the facts, you lose your ability to stand effectively. Why do we expand on the facts? Why do we get so emotional about the facts and say things that really aren't true but are connected to things that are true? Well, it's probably because we've been watching CNN. Oh, come on, people. You know, you just got to go. It's a joke. It's, yeah. But it's true. Okay? It's true. Why do we expand on things? Number one, we're very emotional about something, and we're talking to somebody about it, and I'm going to, he's very even kill. I don't know if he's that way at home, but every time I see him, he's very even kill. And I really want him to be on my side and feel the anger that I feel, right? And so I tell him a couple of things, and his facial features are just chewing the gum and just looking at me, moving his feet a little bit, laughing at his wife. Oh, he's just not getting it. Okay, and then I start expanding on the facts. And I continue to expand on the facts until I get a reaction from him that matches my feelings on the subject. At the point that I begin to exaggerate and manipulate him to have the same feelings that I have is the moment that I begin to lie. And it's also the moment that I have moved him into a position and created something that doesn't even exist, and then I'm expecting him and I to stand against this person concerning it. We have a tendency to do that. 
Mordecai is in a very emotional state and he could have expanded on the facts and he could have slammed Haman and he could have done a lot of things and made up a big story, but he didn't. He was praying and he stuck to the facts and he trusted God with the rest. You and I can't do that. We should not do that. I'm waiting for him to feel just like me. I also expand the facts so that I can look better than the person that I'm talking about or that the person that's against me. You know, I'm telling him the facts about this. I've already got him there, right? And it expanded just a little bit. You know I don't deserve this, right? And so he laughs. You wasn't exactly the right choice, were you? <laughs> I know you are. I'm just I'm messing with you a little bit. So here's this guy, and I'm trying to get him on my side. I'm saying, man, I really don't deserve it. And then I start explaining what a great guy I am and that they should not be doing that to me because I want to elevate myself above the people that I'm against. We all do this. We, we get so emotional, we begin to elevate ourselves and make ourselves seem more important and that we are the ones that are right and we're trying to convince other people that we're right when all the time we should have checked our emotions at the door, we should have prayed and allowed God to mold our spirit in such a way where we just deal with the facts so that we could effectively deal with the situation. Is everybody tracking with me? Mordecai gave her the facts and the facts only. And if you have the amazing ability to exaggerate the facts of your particular situation, I want to let you know this morning, you are making that situation worse, and you're making yourself, placing yourself in a position where you cannot stand for what is right, because you are now standing on falsehood. And once this guy right here that I've talked to figures out that I lied to him, it doesn't matter what truthful thing I told him, he's not going to believe that either. C-N-N. Come on. It's just the way we work. Look, I believe that Americans are smarter than all of that. I believe God's people are smarter than all of that. They might bite onto the hook for a little bit and hang on, but as soon as they smell a lie, they will let go of that lie. I believe Christians are smart. I believe you let me just, I believe you, including if you're a visitor, I believe that you're smarter than that to not get so wrapped up in all this exaggeration stuff that you go with it. When you are in a bad situation, tell the facts only. That is what God would want you to do. So, in Hathach, if you're counting, that is the fourth way I've pronounced that word went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach. Oh, still four. And commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Listen. What Mordecai is asking Esther to do means that he is asking her to put her life on the line. Her life on the line. She is going to say in verse 15, knowing that her life is on the line and she could lose it all, her life, her queenship, her power, she says these words, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Turn to your neighbor and say, if I perish, I perish. Yeah. If I perish, I perish. Here is a lady, a queen, that is willing to put her life on that line to stand for the right Let me contrast that a little bit. Here is the Christian that will not speak up for truth because they might lose a friend. Here is a person that will not speak truth in their family because they don't want the tension in the family that that comes with. Here is a person that they know that they should speak out about something at work and they should tell people how they stand on it, but they will not because they are afraid that they might lose their job. Here is Esther asking people to pray for her knowing that she will lose her Doesn't this stuff now look petty? Come on. Doesn't it look petty? We live in a culture of peer pressure, and I don't care if you're in school, in middle school, in elementary school, in high school. You have peer pressure when you're older, at your job, with the people that you live around, with the people that you uh, rub elbows with. There's a lot of peer pressure going on in this world. There's peer pressure every time you turn on the TV, every time you turn on the radio, every time you hear people talking. There's peer pressure that is all around you at all times. And sometimes that peer pressure seems like it's more powerful than God is, or maybe better yet, you allow that peer pressure to be more powerful than what God is. You allow that peer pressure to change the way that you think about things. And it's at the moment that we begin to change the way that we think about things because of peer pressure that we move away from truth And we're living in a total different world. When our safety becomes more important than truth, when our acceptance becomes more important than truth, that is the moment that we step away from the faith that God has given us in the Bible. Come on, church. 
It is not the way that it should be. You and I, because Jesus has given us this responsibility, are the only hope for the world. We carry the message of the gospel of a God who sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for the world's sin so that those people can get forgiveness of their sins and go to heaven. We are the hope of the world. The world needs us to stand for the truth of the word of God and stand for it effectively. Come on. We are the only hope for the world. And every action you do, everything that you say either enables you to be that hope for the world or enables you not to be that hope for the world. You and I need to stand for truth. We need to go out of here and say, hey, I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to think about what I'm about to say to, to these people and how to do it and when to do it and all that kind of stuff. But if I perish, I perish. And if I perish, I go to a better place. If I perish, the God that saved my soul will be proud of me. If I perish, I have eternal rewards in heaven. If I perish, maybe one person will hear what I have to say and they will change and turn to God for the betterment of the kingdom. Come on! We are God's own, well, we are the world's only hope. We're not God's only hope because, you know, that just doesn't work. But we are the world's only hope. We, you and I, have been given that task by a holy, righteous, amazing, gracious, merciful God. We need to stand. Some of you this morning, you know you've kept your mouth shut long enough, you need to enter into the conversation and let the chips fall. Some of you need to change the way that you act outside of church. And maybe your standing is just mimicking what the Bible actually says how to live and you do it outside of the church. Maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe you just need to go ahead and have that conversation that you've been needing to have for a very long time, but you're so scared that things are going to break up that you just won't do it. You need to fast, pray, and have that conversation. The children of God need to stand. We need to stand. Check this out. Verse 5, on the third day, Jesus arose from... No, no, that's not the passage. I just wondered if you were looking at your passage. See, I test you. See, yeah. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw the queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The prayers were answered and Esther was saved. All of this happened. All of this happened without a voice of God from heaven confirming to Esther what she should do, 
without a prophet going to Esther to tell her what she should do, and without an angel showing up to tell Esther what she should do. Why is that important? I'm not God. Don't even claim to be. Not God. But why is that important? Because statistically, 99.9% of all of you in here will never have an angel visiting you to tell you what to do, a prophet to tell you what to do, or any voice coming out of heaven loudly to tell you what to do, or even in a whisper. God has already given you what to do in his word. He has already spoken it. Sometimes we wait. God just confirmed to me that I need to talk to this person. And God's up in heaven saying, yeah, um, Matthew chapter 3, verse 33. We say, well, maybe we shouldn't handle this or stand for this, or maybe I should change my view on this. And God has already spoken to you because he's given you something from, let's say, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, which is an amazing proverb. Or Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. Maybe you already have the confirmation that you need and God just wants you to take the step of faith to do the right thing. I would love it sometimes if God could just, I don't even need an angel. I I just need something to weirdly happen to the radio and like a different voice comes on and Philip, this is the voice of an angel. We didn't want to appear to you because we didn't want you to faint. So we want you to do, and then lay it out for me. And then the radio go, goes right back into the music that it was playing, right? Or, or you're laying at night and you have a dream and, you know, you get woke up from the dream and standing beside your bed, which would be kind of weird. It would be this white figure that would be telling you, you need to do this. I'm confirming that you need to do this. Or if we could just get some type of fleece that we lay outside and we just say, hey, Lord, I know this storm is coming up, but if that fleece is dry at the end of the storm, I will know that that's what you want me to do because that would be absolutely impossible. I'm, I'm telling you right now, he doesn't need to do that. He's already told you. He's already told you. How many of you have kids? I'm going to close up right here. How many of you have kids, right? How many of you have told those kids what to do? How many of you have come home and the kid was like, well, I wasn't really sure if you wanted me to do that. God is up in heaven. Every time you say, I'm not really sure if God wants me to do that, God is up in here up in heaven saying, I told you clearly, I've already spoken in my word, quit making excuses, stand and do the right thing. Amen? Stand and do the right thing. You are placed in whatever position that you're in for such a time as this. Let's stand and read this verse of scripture. Together. This is Esther chapter 4, verse 14. This is what it says. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. 
but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 